Hello everyone, welcome back to Logical Bible Study, and this is where we take a look at the Gospel reading from the day's Mass, as you know if you've been following the podcast for a while. Today we're looking at a chapter from Mark, so Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12, a really interesting parable here from Jesus. So we will read the text, and then we'll have a go at providing an exegesis of each of the phrases here in the text all with a goal to helping you understand the Bible better and to help you get to know Jesus' intention in giving these parables. Jesus began to speak to the chief priests, the scribes and the elders in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He fenced it round, dug out a trough for the winepress and built a tower. Then he leased it to tenants and went abroad. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce from the vineyard. But they seized the man, thrashed him, and sent him away empty-handed. Next he sent another servant to them. Him they beat about the head and treated shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. Then a number of others, and they thrashed some and killed the rest. He had still someone left, his beloved son. He sent him to them last of all. They will respect my son, he said. But those tenants said to each other, This is the heir. Come on, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and make an end of the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this text of scripture? It was the stone rejected by the builders that became the keystone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. And they would have liked to arrest him because they realized that the parable was aimed at them, but they were afraid of the crowds. So they left him alone and went away. So let's always, well, we always want to start by asking what's the context? What has happened just prior to this? So Jesus has entered Palm uh, Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Just before this, he's cursed the fig tree and he's cleansed the temple. So we're in the last week of Jesus' life here. Jesus is teaching in the temple and his authority is being questioned by the Jewish leaders in chapter 11. So he's already in the temple and that leads into today's passage here in chapter 12. Verse 1, Jesus began to speak to the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. So that's his audience. What's the difference between these groups, chief priests, scribes, and elders? While they seem to overlap a little bit, they are officers held by the leading Jews in Jerusalem. So it appears that the chief priests are in charge of the temple, the scribes are in charge of guarding and interpreting the law, so teaching people, and the elders would be respected community leaders of some sort, so they're in charge of the community kind of. This group ranks higher than common Pharisees, so we have here some quite high-ranking Jewish officials. And by now we know, if you read the Gospel of Mark up to this point, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had fairly clearly rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So it's not a coincidence that Jesus is speaking them this parable. And he's speaking to them in parables, that's the word that's used. So he's choosing to speak in a veiled way. We know from earlier in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus deliberately chooses parables not to make things clearer, but to actually make things more difficult to understand. And 
if you look at chapter 4, verse 11, which is around the time of the parable of the mustard seed, Jesus says that he chooses to speak in parables so that those who are in the kingdom will understand and those who are seeking the kingdom will understand, but those who are outside the kingdom and not interested will not understand. And that's why Jesus speaks this one here, because he knows that they are outside the kingdom. So only those who are genuinely open to God and hear him say this parable will understand it fully. That's sort of the main idea here. The parable we're about to hear is a really interesting one. It's one of my favorites because every detail is cleverly placed there by Jesus. Sometimes Jesus just tells a parable and he's making one main point and we shouldn't try to press the details. But here I think is one of the parables where all of the details of the parable have been deliberately placed there to mean something by Jesus. So he starts by saying a man planted a vineyard. And that would be quite common in um, the culture that he was living in. There are many vineyard owners. Now, let's stop there, though, because as soon as Jesus said a man planted a vineyard, they probably would have started to think back to another famous parable about a vineyard in the Old Testament. There's actually quite a few places where in the Old Testament where God is depicted as a landowner and Israel is depicted as the vineyard. That's pretty common. But there's one place in particular that Jesus probably has in mind here, and that would be Isaiah chapter 5. It's well worth reading that one before you look at today's passage. So Isaiah chapter 5, at the start of it, Israel is depicted as a vineyard planted by God, and God is the the gardener, the planter. And it actually says there in Isaiah chapter 5 that the vineyard has a hedge, a wine press, and a tower. And Jesus is going to use the exact same words here, so it's not a coincidence. He is thinking of this passage. And if you read Isaiah chapter 5, in that mini parable that God gives, the vineyard in the parable does not produce good fruit, and so it's destroyed. And in the context of the Old Testament in Isaiah, it was a warning of coming destruction for uh, the Jewish people. And just after this, of course, um, the southern kingdom was destroyed for their unfaithfulness. It's the same kind of thing here. Jesus is warning the Pharisees of the coming destruction because they're not producing good fruit. So let's look at a few of the little phrases he uses here. Jesus says, the man fenced it round, so he protects his vineyard. What would that mean? Well, a lot of Jewish interpretations at the time considered um, in Isaiah chapter 5, they believe that the wall, the fence around the uh, vineyard in chapter 5, represents Israel dwelling in safety in the walled cities of Jerusalem. And here Jesus is giving the parable in Jerusalem, so that's probably not a coincidence. Jesus goes on, they dug out a trough for the wine press. So the idea is the vineyard owner is doing everything he can to make it a fruitful vine. He built a tower, and so the tower is there so it can be watched over and managed effectively. Some uh, Jews interpreted the tower in Isaiah chapter 5 to represent the temple, which is interesting. The basic idea is the landowner in Jesus' parable here does everything he can to look after the vineyard, just as God has done everything he can to extend grace to Israel over the centuries. This is a parable about Israel. Jesus goes on, the man leased it to tenants, And that was pretty common in that culture. If a vineyard owner was going away, he would hire people to look after the vineyard in his absence. So this is a clear reference to the Pharisees and to the other Jewish leaders. Their job has been to watch over the Jewish people on behalf of God. 
And then the man went abroad, or as other translations have it, he went into another country. And that's what vineyard owners would often do. They're often wealthy businessmen. So they would go abroad to keep doing business and they would trust others to make it productive while they are away. So you probably start to see some parallels here with how God has worked over the centuries. Verse 2, when the time came, so the time there refers to the time for collecting fruit at the harvest, according to the Old Testament, that would occur at each harvest beginning with the fifth year after planting. You can see that in Leviticus 19 if you're interested. So every year at harvest time, the vineyard owner would send messengers to go and collect some of the produce. So that's what he does here. He sends a servant to the tenants. So the vineyard owner is sending a person as a representative of himself to go and check on the harvest. What's this referring to in terms of Jesus' metaphor? Clearly, it's talking about their prophets. It's talking about how God has sent prophets to the Old Testament people over time through the centuries. Why is he sending these messengers? Well, Jesus tells us he sends the servants to get from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. So when the landowner plants the vineyard, it's not just for fun. He actually wants it to produce good fruit. That's the purpose. So tenants in that culture were expected to give an agreed portion of their crop to the owner. So the owner is the main one who should be getting all the fruit, but the owners would let the tenants take some. But of course, most of it is owned by the owner and he has a right to most of the fruit. Think about how that relates to God. So God put Jewish leaders over Israel and he expected that they would guide Israel into producing good fruit or good works. That's uh, God's intention in calling a people to himself. Verse 3, but they seized the man, thrashed him and sent him away empty handed. So the vineyard owner sends a messenger to get the fruit, but the tenants, they assault the messenger. Why would they do that? Well, in uh, in the context of the parable, the tenants probably don't want the master to find out that they haven't been looking after the vineyard very well. That's why they don't want the messenger to, to be able to make it back to them, possibly. Or it could also be, and this is more likely, that they just want to keep the fruit for themselves. They're just being selfish. Verse 4, next he sent another servant to them, him they beat about the head and treated shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and then a number of others, and they thrashed some and killed the rest. It's quite a graphic parable, isn't it? This is a really clever reference Jesus does here to the way the Jewish people continually treated the prophets. God continually sent them messengers to check on the harvest, to check on the Jewish leaders, And pretty much every time God sends a prophet in the Old Testament, the prophet comes with a message of repentance. And almost always the Jewish establishment rejects the message of the prophet and quite often they actually kill the prophet. So it's a really good um, parable of showing exactly what the Jewish leaders really did do to God's messengers. Verse 6, Jesus continues the parable. "He He had still someone left, his beloved son. So the, the landowner has a last resort. It's his son. Now, he's probably reluctant to send his son to the tenants because he knows there's a good chance that his son is not going to come back. And in reality, in that culture, if this really did happen where a landowner kept sending messengers and they kept being killed, well, then it's incredibly unlikely that he would actually send his son. So this might be a reference to God's great patience and love and mercy. He didn't have to keep sending 
messengers, but he chooses to. In fact, God is making a sacrifice by sending um, all of these messengers um, to be killed. So it does tell us something about the character of God here. Interestingly, this phrase here, um, his beloved son, in the Old Testament, that phrase is always used in reference to an only son who is destined to die. That's really interesting, isn't it? Beloved son in the Old Testament is only ever used for a son that they know is going to die. You see that in Genesis chapter 22 with Isaac being sacrificed. It's in Jeremiah 6 verse 26, Amos chapter 8 verse 10, and Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10, if you want to have a look at those references to beloved sons. Jesus goes on, he sent his son to them last of all. Now, the word here, last of all, is actually um, eschaton. So it has this idea of time, and it's a subtle reminder that the coming of Jesus signifies the fullness of time. He sent his son to them in the fullness of time. They will respect my son, he said. Why does the landowner think that? Well, think about how sons and fathers worked in that culture. So in first century Jewish culture, the son was considered to be the best representation of the father. Essentially, they were considered to have the same human, or the same nature. Um, if you saw the son, you saw the father, and the son could speak on behalf of the father. That meant that if a man sent his son to you, the way you treated his son was a reflection of the way you felt about the father. So it's really, really interesting theology here. Obviously, this is a clear reference to Jesus being God's son. We know that as Christians, but, you know, to his first century audience, that wasn't obvious to them. The main meaning of this particular part of the parable is that God has sent his son into the world to check on his vineyard, and in particular to check on its leaders, the Jewish leaders at the time. This could be seen as an answer to the question Jesus was asked in chapter 11. If you remember in verse 28, he was asked, by what authority are you doing these things? Well, here he kind of answers the question. He says, I'm the son of the father. The parable goes on, verse 7, But those tenants said to each other, This is the heir. Come on, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So the tenants talk amongst themselves. They figure, well, our master is quite rich, and he has a big inheritance. They know that one day the inheritance is going to go to his son. So they decide, well, let's kill the son, because then the uh, once the father dies as well, Essentially, there's no one to inherit it, and that property will become what's called ownerless property. And in that culture, if there's ownerless property, the first person to claim it gets to keep it. So that's their plan. If they kill the son, eventually the father will die, and they can claim the vineyard for themselves. So their true motive is being exposed. They want to keep the vineyard and its fruit for themselves, and basically because they're being selfish and greedy. So what's the parallel here with Jesus' time? Well, the Jewish leaders want the vineyard, or Israel, to themselves out of their own greed. They want to be revered by Israel. They want to be considered the leaders of Israel for their own sake, really. Um, And on top of that, they also, as we know, they plot to kill Jesus, God's son. And in a sense, that is out of hatred for the message that he brings from the Father. Really interesting. Verse 8, they throw him out of the vineyard and they kill him, if you read verse 8, and they actually don't even give the son a proper burial in the parable. The detail about him being cast out of the vineyard and being killed, obviously it's a reference to his crucifixion, it's a prophecy actually, a subtle prophecy, but 
him being cast out of the vineyard, that could be a reference to the fact that Jesus is killed outside the walls of Jerusalem, which of course he was when he was crucified. Verse 9, Jesus now asks his audience a question. Now, what will the owner of the vineyard do? The Greek here says the Lord of the vineyard, so it's recalling God as Lord, perhaps. Jesus is addressing this question to the Pharisees to see if they've understood the parable. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus kind of answers the question for them. He says, he will come and make an end of the tenants. In fact, Matthew's version of this parable says a wretched end. He will make a wretched end of the tenants. We don't like to talk about this, but this is an element where God is clearly said to punish. He's punishing the bad leaders. And most likely this is a reference to the destruction of the temple. When did God punish or judge the Jewish leaders? In AD 70, when the temple and the Jewish system was destroyed. And there's a whole lot of theology around the significance of AD 70, which you've probably heard on this podcast before. So here, when God finally brings judgment on the Jewish leaders, God's long-suffering patience gives way to severity towards the tenants who had shown such flagrant contempt for his will. But keep in mind that God does not punish the vineyard itself, Israel. God does not punish Israel. He's actually corrupting, sorry, he's punishing the corrupt leadership. That's um, the main teaching of this parable. And Jesus goes on, he will come and make an end of the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So not only will the vineyard own um, tenants be judged, but the vineyard will actually move into someone else's hands. Even though the vineyard tenants had worked hard to make it theirs, in the end, someone else gets it. Now, Matthew's version adds an extra phrase here. So probably Jesus also included this additional phrase at the time, but Mark didn't feel it was necessary, which is, who will deliver the produce to him when the season arrives. So God wants to set up some new tenants who will help produce good fruit and turn that good fruit over to God. And as we know from the rest of the New Testament, that's exactly what God does. He makes a new leadership system, which is the church headed by the apostles. So Jesus finishes that mini metaphor, a fascinating one, And that was an agricultural metaphor. He's now going to transition into an architectural metaphor to make the same point. So verse 10, Jesus then quotes scripture to them. So he says, have you not read this text of scripture? Now that's quite insulting to say to a Pharisee. Of course they've read their scriptures. But he's reminding them of something they should remember. And this is what he quotes to them. It was the stone rejected by the builders that became the keystone. This was the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see. Now, that's from Psalm 118, and if you read that psalm in context, it's a celebration of the Lord's rescue, uh, Lord rescuing his people from their enemies. And it was actually chanted by Passover pilgrims flocking to Jerusalem pretty often. In fact, in the chapter before this, Mark chapter 11, it was quoted in another context. When Jesus entered Jerusalem for Palm Sunday, the same psalm was quoted, Psalm 118. So, it's a very common psalm about approaching the temple, and now Jesus is in the temple, so he doesn't pick this psalm by accident. He knows it's a temple psalm. Let's pull this, um, the text of Psalm 118 apart a bit. It was the stone rejected by the builders that became the keystone. So, the keystone, or sometimes called cornerstone in some translations, it's the indispensable foundation stone that was used to build a building. 
So the foundation stone wasn't just the first random stone. It was carefully picked and chosen. The builders would deliberately pick a stone that was shaped correctly to use as their keystone. And if it was no good, it would be rejected by the builders and not used. So they would carefully pick the keystone. The Psalm 118, when it talks about the keystone in context, is talking about the keystone of the temple. And Jesus, remember, is saying this parable in the temple. Another element to this is as he's speaking, the temple is being renovated. So it could have been that they were looking around watching the renovations take place. These renovations took about 60 years, something like that, in the first century. So in a real sense, the chief priests were the builders of the temple who were overseeing the temple, but they have rejected the key cornerstone. Jesus is kind of saying, I am the cornerstone of your faith, or I need to be the cornerstone of your faith, but they're rejecting him. This, um, it might seem like a bit of an obscure psalm to um, quote, um, this keystone psalm, but it actually comes up a whole lot. If you know your New Testament, it's one of the main psalms that's quoted in the rest of the New Testament um, for showing the significance of Jesus and his um, death on the cross. So that's quoted in Matthew 21, verse 44, Luke 20, verse 17. It's in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 1, and in 1 Peter 2, verse 7. This idea of Jesus being the cornerstone keeps coming up over and over again. So the overall meaning here, why has Jesus quoted the psalm here from Psalm 118? The meaning seems to be Jesus is the stone. He is the keystone, but he's been rejected by the builders which in this metaphor is Israel's leaders. Just as in the previous parable, the son was rejected by the tenants. But as the psalm goes on, in the psalm, the Jewish people are vindicated by God. Similarly, Jesus will be vindicated by God. And in fact, on top of that, he's become the foundation stone of an entirely new building, the church. So just as in the um, parable earlier about the vineyard, the parable is transferred to a different group of owners. It's transferred to the church. Same here where uh, the cornerstone of Jesus is rejected by the Jewish leaders, but him as the cornerstone is going to create something new altogether, which is the church. So it's fascinating how he's managed to put these two parables together, which use quite different metaphors, but have the same um, basic teachings. This idea of the church being the new temple of God is developed later in the New Testament. Now, Matthew's version, if you read Matthew's version of this parable, he adds in some more words at the end of this and some quite direct words from Jesus to the um, to the Pharisees where he says things about Jesus being the stone that's going to crush them. But Mark, uh, for whatever reason, um, has not included those particular words of Jesus. He finishes the parable there. You could ask, um, you know, why why might Mark have included a sh- slightly shorter version than Matthew? It depends on who wrote first. Most people would say Mark wrote first. So it's likely that Mark knew the full version of what Jesus said, um, but he felt that maybe it was too confronting for his hearers if he included those harsh words of Jesus at the end. But we can really only guess why um, Mark has left those words out. Verse 12, this is the final verse. Mark says, and they would have liked to arrest him because they realized that the parable was aimed at them. So the Jewish leaders understand what he's getting at. They understand the basic teachings of the parable. But like most people in 
the Gospel of Mark, when they hear Jesus' parables and they're outside the kingdom, they don't accept the message of the parable and repent. They know the basic idea of the parable, but they just choose not to accept it or to dwell on it anymore. They just refuse it. Rather, they want to arrest him, probably because they feel insulted. He's just insulted the leaders of God's people. But they cannot arrest him, Mark says, because they are afraid of the crowds. So Jesus is preaching in the temple. There's people all around. And as Matthew's version here says, many of the crowd see Jesus as a prophet. They support him. And so the Jewish leaders realize, well, we can't really arrest Jesus now. There's too many supporters around and they will revolt if we try and arrest him. That's basically why they eventually arrested him in private, in secret, in the garden at nighttime, because they didn't want anyone in public in daylight to see him being arrested. Otherwise, there might have been some sort of uprising. So they sneakily took him off into custody where no one could intervene. That's the end of our text today. So if you're listening on a weekday, then chapter 12 will continue for you on in this podcast in the coming days. It's a fascinating passage today, isn't it? You can see why it's um, one of my favorite parables. It's um, really a fascinating one to unpack. Now, usually we would do um, look at the catechism paragraphs that link to this passage, but there aren't any um, that link to Mark's version of this parable, although there are some that link to Matthew's version. So we'll finish it there for today. Thank you for listening. Hope you learned something new. And as always, please think about some people in your life who might benefit from hearing these exegeses so we can help the podcast grow and reach more people. Thank you. Please tune in again tomorrow. Thank you.